0: Hello, and welcome to the Her and Him Podcast. I'm Dale.
1: And I'm Tamara.
0: And when two theologians get married, what you get
1: is a podcast.
0: Well, as we're talking, our listeners might be hearing a low hum underneath our voices, and that would be our air conditioning because it's already like a thousand degrees outside.
1: Not quite that hot, but it's it is pretty warm.
0: Just a couple of weeks ago, it was raining, we were wearing jackets, and now we're turning on the AC and getting sunburns by walking out to get the mail. So I would say I'm not being that traumatic. It seems like (laughs) summer is here already.
1: It is. And I'm really excited because my plants have not died yet. Usually my plants start to die when when the heat hits. And it's probably because I'm not really good at watering them. But so far, they're alive.
0: Hey, but the season is still young.
1: (laughs) They're going to survive this year. I'm really hopeful. I'm
0: certain of it. Yes. But what are some of your favorite summer activities?
1: I don't really have anything particular I enjoy doing in the summer. I just like the summer vibes. Everyone is really social. People are excited to get together, barbecues, pool party, like hang out at night because it's it's still sunny out but it's cool enough but you're not freezing. So, I think I just really enjoy everyone's company in the summer because people are a little bit more carefree and you get invited to a lot more things in the summer and for someone who likes to be social it's really fun for me
0: yeah and i feel like really one of the cornerstones of summer like when you know that summer is here and you're you've like warmed into it and you still got a ways to go is fourth of july and fourth of july weekend i feel like that's like the most summer that anybody could ever summer
1: Yeah. 4th of July is always a big deal. It's probably one of the most exciting holidays for Americans, which makes sense. But it's definitely the American thing to do is find something fun and patriotic to do on 4th of July.
0: Right. You got to eat hot dogs. You got to eat hamburgers. You got to eat potato chips. I think. Yeah. You got to drink soda pop. You got to look at fireworks.
1: You need a baseball cap.
0: Yeah. You just need to be super American. On that day, but growing up, there was something that my church did that I always felt like it was kind of strange. And I don't think this was your experience, but it was certainly mine. Where every Fourth of July weekend, my church would do a patriotic service.
1: Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, so
0: you would come to church, and there would be like the red, white, and blue like bunting up on the outside of the church, like like from horse day. racing. Yeah, or like opening day of baseball. Oh, okay. There would be like American flags everywhere. And then we at your church. Yes. Okay. And then we would like in the the worship center. And we would actually sing like two or three patriotic hymns. So we'd sing like God Bless America and other like patriotic hymns. Did you sing the
1: national anthem? Um,
0: I think sometimes we would have people do like a special number. Okay. But we would congregationally sing as a natural just course of the worship set, instead of singing, you know, whatever contemporary worship song yeah. we would normally sing, we would sing patriotic hymns. Hmm. And I always felt like that was so strange because there were certainly like Christian themes in a lot of these patriotic hymns. But as you got into like the second or the third verse of the hymn there's really no other way to put it there. It's like war propaganda. Mm. There's lines of like, I will die for my country and right. I'm proud to die for my country. It's not exactly. And I will fight for my
1: country. Worship to God.
0: Yeah. And yeah. so it was like really bizarre to me. Hmm. And I always walked away from that service, just feeling so strange about it and just so uncertain. But there are other people that if we wouldn't have had that patriotic service, it it would have been strange for them that we didn't have it. Right. And so there's this two sides where I felt like it was just completely bizarre out of left field that we would be singing these battle hymns in
1: Mm -hmm.
0: uh, a worship set to others because those are patriotic songs. It would be bizarre that on 4th of July weekend, we wouldn't sing those as the church gathered. And I think it really hits at this fundamental question that has been a part of American history uh, that none of us really agree on, at least not fully. And it's this question as to whether or not America is a Christian nation.
1: And that's not as easy of a question to answer, which is probably why so many people disagree. Because it's not so cut and dry as yes or no. And that's because of the history we have with our founding fathers. And obviously if you even look at our government today, like our if we were founded as a Christian nation, are we still a Christian nation? So it really gets messy.
0: And really what is a what is a Christian nation? Right. That's a definition that maybe is slippery.
1: It is. And so depending on who you talk to, some are gonna say, Absolutely, we were founded as a Christian nation and we have slipped away from that. Or we still are a Christian nation, or some who say look at some of the founding fathers that were very clearly not Christians and so we could never say we were a Christian nation because of the history that we have.
0: Right. So you really do have those different camps of we were a Christian nation, eh, but we've moved out of that. We were a Christian nation and by golly, we are still a Christian nation. Or we never were a Christian nation. And really when you look back at the history of it, Mm -hmm. it's like, well, you can kind of make arguments either way depending on what data you're looking at. Mm -hmm. I mean because when you look at the the founding of the nation, we were founded on enlightenment ideas about uh, new theories of government, government by the people. But those Enlightenment ideas were certainly like undergirded by Judeo Christian ideas, those virtues and those ethics. And even our founding documents say that we're endowed by our creator with inalienable rights. So it's, it's talking about this God, and the God they're talking about is, is the Christian God, more or less, the right. God of the Bible. Um,
1: yeah, but then you have people like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. Who they weren't Christians? were not Christians. No. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, he made his own version of the Bible. He eliminated miracles. He got rid of so many things that are in the New Testament. He
0: cut out the resurrection. He,
1: his right. gospel well, accounts
0: end with Jesus' death, which is kind of a bummer.
1: Yeah. So it's it's really clear there that... Thomas Jefferson was not a Christian and Benjamin Franklin is really a difficult one to know in regards to a lot of the things we read about him
0: and he was very theologically complex he was because some stuff he wrote he sounds Christian he uses all the language and he sounds Christian but then he's quoted as saying that he can't believe that God would become man, that Jesus would raise from the dead, all of these things that are required for you to be a Christian, he did not affirm, and yet he sounded so much like a Christian. Yeah. It's this very complex kind of situation where they believed almost in the God of the Bible, Mm -hmm. but really more they believed in the Judeo-Christian ethic, the Judeo-Christian morals and virtues. They saw those virtues, the teachings of Jesus Mm -hmm. as something that we should build a society on. And that if we do that, our society will be successful.
1: And I think that is a fair statement to go back and look at the founding fathers. It's very evident that we were founded on these Judeo-Christian principles. I don't think there's much of an argument there.
0: Right. It's like in the documents itself, like you are endowed by your creator, and even if you look at a lot of the writings they're very much influenced by the judeo-christian ethic and both jefferson and franklin would argue that if you want a society to flourish then that you need to follow those, those morals things. and virtues that would be the teachings of jesus those are the things that your society as a whole needs to uphold in order for your country to flourish and on that, I agree with them entirely.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And so we see that in the beginning of The Nation, that there's this kind of um, sort of Christian founding, but it's really just the moral virtues. And even that's complicated by the fact that at the same time that we were founded on these Enlightenment ideas, we were also founded on the backs of slaves— At that very same time. So we're saying you need to uphold Christian virtue in order for society to flourish. At the same time as we are enslaving millions of people.
1: Which is not a Christian virtue. Yeah, yeah. And brutalizing them
0: and torturing them and using them for free labor. So there's this very kind of checkered past of what it means to be a Christian nation. And if we are one.
1: And when they founded America... They were leaving England because of the way that church and state were mixing. Exactly. And so they came here wanting to have these freedoms in religion, freedoms of religion.
0: Right. And they wanted to have a separation of church and state. Yeah. Where... Even though morals are inherently religious, they didn't want a religious authority structure controlling government like it had in England, like it had in the Holy Roman Empire. They wanted freedom from that. They wanted separation of church and state, and they wanted freedom uh, of religion, which isn't the same thing as freedom from religion. Right, they didn't want to remove religion, they
1: wanted religion still, they
0: thought religion was part of the flourishing of society, exactly. namely Christian religion, right, of one form or another, but they
1: weren't limiting right other religions, yes, because they didn't want this one religion to be the one that ruled, which again makes things very complicated and really muddies the waters a bit because you can't just say yes, we were a Christian nation, we were founded as a Christian nation, and we are, and you can't exactly say no either.
0: Right. I think because there there is this struggling of identity, we had this Christian-ish founding. There was a resurgence of that during World War II and directly after World War II as we were fighting against basically the forces of evil against the Nazis. And uh, as we see, like a lot of the the things about our nation that are kind of, Christianish, like we have under God in our Pledge of Allegiance, so we're having God we trust, we trust on, our money. on our money. Those were relatively late additions because there was this resurgence of this right. idea that we're a Christian nation. And so I think ever since then, we've been having this debate a little bit as to, are we a Christian nation? What does that mean? And as we grow more diverse and there's more people in America, more American citizens who who are from a diversity of religions who uh, wouldn't identify with Christianity or even many of them with any religion at all. And so this question keeps coming up. And I guess the question is, why does this question actually matter?
1: Yeah, so if, if we as Christians don't wrestle with this and if we don't think it through and we don't try and understand it, It really becomes difficult as Christians to know what is our role in interacting with the government? What are we supposed to do as Christians? And really understanding our identity as Americans and our identity as Christians.
0: Both important identities.
1: Both are very important identities. And we also want to honor God in that. And so that's why it is so important for us to ask this question and wrestle with it and try and try and figure it out for our identity as people as american citizens and our identity as christians as citizens of the kingdom
0: right because the way we understand that is going to determine how we interact with the government and how we interact uh, with each other on behalf of the government or on behalf of certain ideals. So we want to fit everything in their right categories right? so that we can be productive in the way that we are operating as Christians who are American.
1: Right. And I think a good place to start is by looking at scripture and what does it say about government? What so does just... the Bible
0: say about America?
1: <laughs> Not Let's what does look. the Bible say about America? Because... Surprise, surprise, it doesn't talk about America. I don't believe you. Well, I'm sorry, but that's true. But we can see it very clearly in Romans, where Paul is trying to tell the church of Rome, how is it that they as citizens of Rome, but also as Christians, are supposed to be interacting with their government? And so that's a biblical principle that we can take as Americans, Um, it wasn't, meant for Americans, but it's a principle that you can take regardless of any government you are sitting under. There is a way that Christians are supposed to interact with the government, and we can look to the Bible actually for that answer.
0: Yeah, in Romans 13, where Paul says that we ought to be subject to the ruling authorities over us, and he says that they are appointed by God to basically hold back evil, to create an ordered society, to punish wrongdoing, And to hold evil at bay so that we can have a a well-ordered and flourishing society. And really that's something that is a part of us being created in the image of God. That's not inherently a Christian thing. That's a human thing that God has appointed for us that we would structure ourselves in such a way that we would – Minimize the amount of evil that is done. We would create an ordered society that could flourish as a people, and government is appointed by God to do that. And so as citizens of any government, and we just happen to be citizens of the American government, we ought to submit to the authority of the ruling powers above us in the government because God placed them there uh, for our good. And while we live in a fallen world and they don't always do what is for our good, mm-hmm. generally speaking, when everything is going well, this is the way that it's supposed to operate.
1: Yeah. And even in that verse, I mean, it talks about if you're rebelling against those authorities, you're actually rebelling against God. Right. I think that's in, I think that's verse two.
0: Mm-hmm. And so we have this call to give the government honor and that's in, in regard to taxes, obeying laws that don't offend our conscience in what God has told us to do, and even in just giving honor and respect, even to to that point of things. And so God established government as this good thing. However, we don't eternally identify with any government or country, even a country as great as America, because it's ultimately this very temporary kind of a thing. And Jesus talked about, Uh, having a kingdom that was not of this world when, was it Pilate or Herod that asked him, are you a king?
1: I think it was Pilate.
0: Was it Pilate? And he says, are you a king? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. And Paul talks about us being citizens of heaven, of this eternal kingdom. So we have this dual citizenship. There's this tension of living under the faulty fallen people running the government that, that we're coming under submitting to them anywhere and everywhere that we can while also leaning into the redemptive kingdom that Jesus came to bring.
1: We don't primarily see this redemptive work in our government as much as we'd like to. Where we actually see it is the church because that is the system that God had set up to offer this redemption to us. And so it's really through the church that we can see that played out.
0: Yeah. And if the church is doing a good job of leaning into the redemption, the collective redemption of a people that Jesus came to bring, then we'll actually begin to see the benefits of that reach all the way back up to the way the government is run. And this is important because I think it determines where our focus will go.
1: Right. When it comes to faith in Jesus, like what we see in the gospel, not just holding to good Christian morals and virtues, because that is an element of the Christian faith, but that is certainly not the saving faith that Jesus came to bring. The saving faith that Jesus came to bring is the gospel and the good news that if you repent of your sin, you are saved and your relationship with God is restored and so what we begin to see is that the work of the church is really important. And our focus in how the church, we interact with the church, should be one of our primary goals. How does the church interact with people? And how do I interact with people based on my local church? And so that local body has the power to begin to see lives around them transformed, not just for the sake of good moral living, but they can begin to see lives transformed for the gospel. And so it starts down here at a, as a grassroots level begins to grow and grow and can eventually grow into this government level, but it should never start as the government forcing people to abide by this faith or to choose Jesus or to um, go to church and, and all of these things that governments have tried, like systems have tried to implement these rules and regulations that are based around the church. But you see, there's so many flaws that come out of that because it was never meant to start on this larger level. It was meant to be through the body of Christ, sharing with people, caring for people, caring for the marginalized. And you see that throughout Christian history, that's been done pretty well. Like schools have been started. Hospitals have been started. Women's rights. Like there's so many good things for the whole of society that have come out of the church.
0: Mm -hmm. It's also worth mentioning that the abolition movement was a Christian movement, even though they were, quote unquote, Christians who were fighting For slavery, what eventually won out was the true faith of Christianity in the abolishment of slavery.
1: Yeah, and so it's not to say that just because there is this separation of church and state that we have no power in what happens in our society, that we have no ability to see change or transformation, but it is to say that those things can start with the body of Christ— which I truly believe is the intention that Jesus had because redemption that he brought was then given to the church. The power to see lives transformed has been through the local body.
0: Yeah, and so it seems like what you're saying is if we put our faith or if we put our political capital into trying to reinforce the idea that America is a Christian nation, then really what we're doing is we're not efficiently using our effort in a way that's going to produce results necessarily. Like if our fight is, well, because we're a Christian nation, we should have prayer in schools because we're a Christian nation. We should say under God in the, pledge of allegiance because we're a christian nation there should be the 10 commandments outside of every courthouse we can certainly fight for those things right and it's possible that we could even win in those things and we could create these structures that kind of give us that christian nation feel but ultimately unless there's the power of the holy spirit yep those things are just kind of an empty shell
1: they actually bring a lot of friction sometimes
0: they do where they don't necessarily need to right i guess what would be more productive is for us to be generous with those things yeah to give some of those things away even though it feels scary because Mm -hmm. the world has changed and the nation has changed and we don't necessarily have that official structure of power i suppose yeah and I think really that's what it boils down to. I think that's why we get so upset about it is because it feels like there's a loss of control. Mm-hmm. feels like there's a loss of power, but really we can be encouraged in that because when Christians have no power and they have no authority, that is when the gospel spreads and transforms in ways that are just off the charts. And we see that in every, every stage of the church, when you see the church grow it within the Roman Empire, right, organically just spreading and spreading like crazy and multiplying, that that's when there was just this amazing movement of God happening. And then all of a sudden, the Roman Empire became Christian. And that's when we began to see a lot of the distortions of the Christian faith happen from there.
1: Well, and I think a large piece of that is because we want this ideal situation. I mean, it would be great. It would be amazing to see a nation that was truly a Christian nation. And I think for the Roman Empire, their hearts started in the right place. Like revival was happening in their nation. Revival was happening among their people. And it grew to this larger level to where now they have labeled themselves and categorized themselves as a Christian nation, as a Christian government. As a Christian empire. As a Christian empire, right. Right. But unfortunately, because we're humans and we're living in this fallen world, even our best attempts at creating this ideal situation, they seem to
0: just go off the rails. Because when you have this, the Christian, quote unquote, Christian systems in place, but you no longer have Christ, all of a sudden those systems become oppressive and distorted.
1: They do. And I. I think it's important to continue to go back to the understanding that it doesn't mean as citizens of America that we don't get to fight for anything. It doesn't mean that we don't get to work in the political system. It doesn't mean any of that.
0: Because there are gains that we could make as Christians. Going back again, the abolitionist movement was this move of Christian people seeking to bring about this good to society. I think we see something similar with the pro-life movement seeking to preserve life. And that's a fundamentally Christian idea that we are propagating and we think it's for the good of our society. So we can very much be involved in bringing about Christian virtues and, and things that Christ would be honored by. But again, we see that coming from the bottom up to affect the, the structures up top. And really what matters is affecting the hearts and minds of people. And the only way that that can happen is if we are showing the love of Jesus rather than trying to legislate the morality of Jesus.
1: And I think that's the big piece, because if you were forced to be in a relationship with Jesus, like that's a problem. That's a huge problem because you don't see that in scripture. You don't see Jesus interacting with anybody in this forceful, you will believe in me whether you like it or not. I don't care where you're at. Like you see conversations where people are wrestling with it and sometimes they turn away. They walk away because they're not ready to to live the life that he's called them to live. And so you constantly see these individual encounters with people and with Jesus and this life of transformation, this life of salvation is not something that's been forced upon anyone. And I think that becomes one of the largest issues is when we try and legislate things, we're then trying to say everyone has to believe in these issues of faith
0: Mm -hmm. but there is is there's such a nuance and there's such a balance because any win that i can get for Mm pro-life i'm going to try and legislate that morality and people say don't legislate morality that's what legislation is it's it's deciding what rules we're living by what is moral what is not moral what is legal what is illegal and so It's really, we're just trying to figure out whose rules we're living by. Um, But I guess what we're trying to say is we we can't put our faith in the rules. The rules are important. I think that's a
1: really clarifying statement.
0: Yeah, so the rules are important, and we want to legislate more towards a Christian morality. But if we can't win those battles, then we can work still on spreading the love of jesus which will transform lives which will eventually change those laws when we hit a critical mass because we've changed the hearts and minds of people well, we haven't jesus has changed the hearts right. and minds of people because we showed the love of jesus to them and so a lot of times we're just starting from the wrong place and we're putting all of our eggs in the basket of changing the rule right in the hopes that 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 will fix it mm-hmm. but it won't actually fix it right Unless there's all of this work of the Holy Spirit that builds up to that. So I think it's a both and.
1: It is. And it's hard. It's hard because it's not as clear cut as we want it to be. Right. So we want prayer to be in school. But then what do you do with someone who who doesn't believe in God and you're forcing them to pray? Like, how do you wrestle with that? How right. do you deal with that if there's not someone who has been saved by Jesus and you're asking them, well, you're telling them, you're forcing them to now they have to pray to Jesus.
0: Right. And that's, you know, looking back into history, that's exactly what many colonizers did to indigenous peoples when they put them in missions. They said, you will believe in Jesus or you will die. And that's not the and gospel. And I
1: am all for our entire nation being re- revived i yeah. am all for redemption and for lives being transformed and people truly coming to the saving faith in jesus that would be amazing
0: but it's all about invitation
1: exactly and and i think that's where the big piece lies is we cannot force it you cannot build this rule and tell someone Now your heart needs to be changed. That's not how it works. It only works through the power of the Holy Spirit.
0: Mm -hmm. So it is this complicated thing where we do want to fight because I believe that like Benjamin Franklin believed, even though he wasn't a Christian, and Thomas Jefferson believed that in order for a nation to flourish, it ought to be founded on the Christian worldview. It ought to be living out the virtues of what God says are virtues and the morals of what God says Mm -hmm. are morals. I believe that God gave those to us, not because he wanted to come up with arbitrary rules, but because he created the world in such a way that it functions well when you do the things that he's told you to do. And so I want to move towards that in any way that we can, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, Again, we just can't put our faith in that legislation. So it's this very complex world that we're walking through where we're trying to advocate for, promote, vote for, legislate things that would be honoring to Jesus while at the same time saying there's something else we need to be doing Mm -hmm. if that's going to have any effect. We need to be working on the hearts and minds of people to turn them towards Jesus because if you know, thousands of people turn towards Jesus and receive the power of the Holy Spirit, all of this will change in yeah. the blink of an eye.
1: And you you can read about those situations happening. I was in my, I think it was a global missions course in undergrad, and it was really interesting to read about entire tribes coming to faith in Jesus. And it was this movement among oh, an entire people group where from the the chief all the way down to you know children who could understand had come to this understanding the saving faith in Jesus and there was revival and there was redemption I think we need to be clear in saying we would love to see that happen for America yes so we're not against in any way shape or form seeing revival true revival of the gospel that can save people happening in America.
0: Exactly. I mean, and that's what we're trying to do. Uh, So many of us across this nation in our neighborhoods, in our regions, we are seeking to be a part of our communities to transform those communities into the image of Jesus. And so we're very much concerned with that. And just, and that is a political thing. That is actually a political thing because politics is how a polis, a nation Mm. or a state is governed, and so we want to change the politics, but that's not the same thing as being partisan or just being purely obsessed with rules and regulations and legislation, although rules and regulations and legislation are important. So, again, it was just like we're just trying to toe that line, you know?
1: So, how do we go about living as individual citizens that will bring about collective redemption?
0: Yeah, so we're talking a lot about collective redemption and revival of an entire nation and transformation of government, and people listening might be thinking...
1: That feels really overwhelming. That
0: feels very overwhelming. Who am I supposed to vote for?
1: Yeah. What, am I supposed to vote?
0: What involvement am I supposed to have in my local government, in the national government? Right. What messages am I supposed to respond to on Facebook? How am I supposed to respond to them? Am I not supposed to? Re- what are you telling me? <laughs> so maybe some practical things that we could talk about. I think the first one is this, that we should fight for the rights of other people. We should fight for the good of other people more than we fight for our own.
1: And that's huge to the Christian faith.
0: Because that's our thing.
1: Because Exactly. That's the whole thing. That's, that's what we are supposed to be doing. We are supposed to be serving others and loving others and showing the love of Jesus to others.
0: And what's crazy is when you do that, all of a sudden, you gain a whole lot of influence.
1: Right. Because people long to be cared for and heard and understood. And so if we begin to fight for people that may not look like us, that may not live like us, that may not talk like us, and we might not even agree within every conversation, if we begin to fight for those people over our own rights, then we are stepping in the right direction because the rights of other people matter. And we should care about those more than ourselves.
0: Yeah. And really, that means for us, from if we're speaking from a political perspective, we need to be fully pro-life from womb all the way to tomb. So in the womb, someone who's marginalized outside the womb, yep. whether they're an ethnic minority whether they are born into a socioeconomic class that limits their opportunities, whether they are a migrant, whether they are a refugee, uh, whatever it might be, we need to be concerned with the good of those peoples, even if they're not a people that we can identify with necessarily, going all the way up to caring for the vulnerable who are elderly and literally everything in between. We need to be pro-life, to the fullest measure of what it means to be pro-life.
1: Right. And not pro-life only in what we understand it in the political setting of a, a child who's not born yet. Right. We need, that is absolutely important. Um, but we also need to care about life outside of the womb too. And that needs to be something that we are fighting for. Something that we are campaigning for, something that we are trying to see what legislation can be changed to actually care about lives that are marginalized or are on the outskirts. And and you see that in scripture. What did they say? Care for the orphans and the widows. And mm-hmm. those were the marginalized people of that day.
0: Mm-hmm. They had no power.
1: They had no power. And the church was supposed to care for them. And they did. They did.
0: And I think as we say that, what that means is... We get a lot more complicated politically. Right. Because America, as it's set up right now, is a two party system with Republicans and Democrats. And if we're really fully going to pursue the collective redemption that Jesus is inviting us into, then we're going to have a really hard time fitting into one of those categories, whether that's Republican or that's Democrat.
1: Right, because you can see the Christian faith or biblical principles and the biblical way to care for people on both sides. So you can see biblical principles for Republicans and for Democrats, but you can also see non-biblical principles
0: I was going to say anti-Christian, Republican. but yeah, in, yes. in both parties. Anti-Christian it's in both bag.
1: parties. Absolutely. And that's where it makes it hard because it would be really great If there were one party that had all of the concerns that Jesus had in it, that would be wonderful.
0: There is. It's called the church, right? It's just not not, a that's not not a partisan political party. Exactly.
1: So that's where it's it's important for us to say we're not going to get caught up by the labels of Republican and Democrat. Yes, I know when it comes to voting for someone, you actually have to vote for someone who's part of a political party.
0: Yeah, you have to make a decision. You have to vote somebody.
1: But as you are making that choice, may it not be first, are they Republican or are they Democrat? May it be, where do they stand on these important issues? And then from there, once you've wrestled with that and made that decision, because they might not stand for all of the issues that they should. They might not be on the right side of every issue, but it's important that Whoever you end up voting for, or whatever party you end up leaning towards, that you don't shoot arrows on the other side of the aisle to your Christian brother and sister.
0: Right, because you can't say that the side you voted for is the Christian side. And I hear this both from the left I do. and from the right, where it's like, I don't see how you could be a Christian and still vote for Trump. I don't see how you could still be a Christian and vote for Biden. And you see it on both sides where you build up these arguments of the anti-Christianness of the other side, but neither side is the Christian choice. Right. It's just not that simple. And we live in the fallen, broken world and this fallen, broken system. And we have to weigh the options. We have to vote. And we ultimately just have to trust that God is in control of that and continue to seek the transformation mm-hmm. of our communities mm-hmm. through the power of the gospel. Even as we stay engaged with that political process through voting or whatever it might be, right? it's, it's this balance and it's easy to get really discouraged on the one side and just disengage entirely. And it's easy to get wrapped up in whether you're watching too much Fox news or you're watching too much MSNBC to get wrapped up in the, particular talking points Mm -hmm. of your political affiliation and then kind of just baptizing that and saying that that is the way of Jesus. And I think when we do that, that's when we really distorted what Jesus came to do.
1: And we're looking at the world through that political lens. And so every argument we can come up with, everything we can say, every rebuttal against the other side is all driven through our political lens. Rather than saying, I'm going to look at everything through the biblical lens, through the lens of Jesus, and say, okay, now how do I assess all of this? How do I respond? And how do I even respond to someone I'm sitting next to in church who is on the complete other end of something than I am Mm -hmm. and still love them and not sit there and say, you are not a Christian because you didn't vote for this or for that. Because that's bullying (laughs) first, but that's also not even an accurate statement Mm -hmm. because there are massive flaws on both sides of the aisle. There are massive holes and massive things that go against What we see in the Bible and what we see as Christians that we should care about. And so for you to stand firmly and say, this is the Christian perspective and I am speaking on behalf of Jesus himself, like that's a really weighty statement. And you are actually making other people feel guilty for something that they're not wrong for because we are all trying to wrestle with this and we're all trying to figure out how do I respond as a Christian first, we have to first be citizens of the kingdom of God.
0: Yeah, and we we have to walk into those partisan viewpoints with our eyes wide open to both the virtues and the shortcomings of those. Yes. And stay humble because really this is the power of the gospel that it, it tears down the, the wall that mm-hmm. divides. Because when we're in a church where someone has a Make America Great Again hat sitting next to someone in a t-shirt that says Feel the Burn – That's something that the world can't explain. That's something that the world can't attain to. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, we live in a world of division in America where everything is so divisive to the core of your identity that you're on the other side. Therefore, you are my existential enemy. Mm -hmm. When we get rid of all of that and we bind each other back together in the spirit of Jesus that's when the Christian politic will actually explode and gain an incredible amount of influence.
1: And so all that to be said, we know this is a difficult conversation. We know this is something that is not cut and dry and it's not black and white. But at the end of the day, what needs to be our primary focus is extending love and grace to one another. Thanks for listening to the Her and
0: If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week.
1: We'd also love it if you head over to iTunes to leave us a rating and review.
0: And be sure to come visit us at herandhim.com, where you'll find show notes for this episode, our blog, and other resources to help you experience the abundant life that Jesus promised to us.
1: Thanks again. and We'll see you next week.